I like the season of Easter uh, because it's a good time to teach what we believe as Christians. And I usually use, in the last many years, I've used this time of year, so it's around April to early June. It's called Eastertide. Churches call this Eastertide. It's the season of Easter when Jesus resurrected and then um, the ascension into heaven and the coming of the Holy Spirit, the Pentecost. This is a great time to actually teach uh, the teachings of the church. What is it that we believe? What happened on the cross? Why do we believe in the need for the cross? Um, and how does all of this teaching come together? That's what the, these next few weeks are going to be. So if you are interested in what we believe as Christians, you won't want to miss uh, the next few weeks as we teach all of these things leading up to early summer. Today, what we're going to do is talk about the cross. Last Sunday, uh, last Sunday, we celebrated Easter Sunday, the resurrection from the dead of Jesus, the cross, and the question that came up as we were singing, in Christ alone, in Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. Why? Amen. I love having clay in the house. Why did Christ have to die? What does it mean? What's the purpose of the cross? That's what we're going to talk about today. Why did we have to have a cross? Um, about 30 years ago, there was a conference. And this conference was held in Minneapolis, and Christians were gathered together, and they were asking this very question. Why do we need the cross? Why do we need all this? And somebody said, why do we need blood dripping? And why do we need all this weird stuff? Maybe we don't even need the cross anymore. Church, maybe we don't need the cross of Jesus. Maybe we don't need any crosses. Why don't we just do God's will? What do we need to talk about the cross for? What I'd like to do today is look at Hebrews chapter 10. And we're going to look at those first 18 verses in Hebrews chapter 10. If you can look in your Bible, phone is okay. What I want to do today is talk about, yes, we do need the cross. And this is why. We do need a cross. And this is why. And hopefully by the end of this talk, it won't just be teaching and ideas, but it will be intensely practical and personal to you as well. I want to say that we do need the cross, and I'm going to walk us through Hebrews 10 along three headings that you'll find in your notes. Those three headings, first is a modern response to the cross. Second is a psychological response to the cross. And third is a spiritual response response. Why do we need the cross? A modern reason, a psychological reason, and finally, a spiritual reason. We begin with that first heading, a modern reason. A modern response, maybe is more appropriate to say, a modern response to the cross. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. Verse 1. 
the old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. And so what we see here is a critique in Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, of religion. When it talks about the old system, it's talking about the old religious sacrificial system. If you were a Jew, you were familiar with this. I don't know if Jews do this today. I don't know if they still have this practice of sacrifice. Um, I don't believe it's the same. But back then, there was a lot of bloodshed. You had to sacrifice an animal to atone, to take away sins. And what's being said here is that old system, it doesn't seem to work very well because all the repetitious sacrifices year after year never were able to provide perfect cleansing for those of us who came to worship. It reminds me of this famous story uh, out of Shakespeare, actually. And it's the story of Macbeth. I don't know if any of you had to read Macbeth in school. It was maybe one of those boring books that you just read the Cliff Notes. The Cliff Notes version is simply this. There was a man named Macbeth, and his wife was Lady Macbeth. Very creative, isn't it? And the two Macbeths were next in line to be the king and queen of Scotland. The problem was there was an old man named Duncan, King Duncan, was in the way. And they couldn't wait to be king and queen. And so what they decided to do when King Duncan came to their castle, and as they gathered together for festivities, when King Duncan retired for the night, they decided to murder him in his sleep. And so what they did was they got the, the guards drunk, and as they, the guards fell asleep, King Dun or, uh, Macbeth, who was not king yet, Macbeth went in, and he took the guards, he took their daggers, and he, he killed the king. He killed the king. And when he realized what he had done, he wandered back to his wife, to her chambers, to Lady Macbeth. And he was still holding the bloodied knives. And as he stood there, blinking, and she stared at him saying, what are you doing? you got to put the knives back, plant it on the guards. And he was shell-shocked. So what she did was she took the knives from him and went back to the scene of the crime, and she planted the bloody knives and smeared the blood on the guards so as to make it look like they did the crime. And of course, that's what it looked like. They got caught. They were executed. And Macbeth and Lady Macbeth ended up becoming king and queen. But the rest of the story of Macbeth is this kind of descent into madness, into craziness, as they realized with the guilt of what they had done that they could not escape their crime. And you have these, these passages in Shakespeare where Lady Macbeth is sleepwalking and she walks over to the sink and she's trying to wash the blood off of her hands, but she can't seem to wash the blood. And in the famous, the famous line, she says, Out! Out, damned spot! Out! I say here again, the smell of blood still. All the perfumes of Arabia, they can't sweeten this little hand. Out, damned spot, out. 
The parallel that I'm making here with Hebrews is that religion tries to take the stain of blood off of our hands using what? More blood. Isn't it ironic that religion would have to shed more blood in order to remove the blood from our hands and our consciences, but it doesn't seem to work very well because you're washing your hands, trying to wash the old blood off with new blood, and there's just blood everywhere, and it just goes to show, and this is the first fill in the blank, that religion, it's not perfect. It's very imperfect. The system of religion with its sacrifices, that's why he says that the author says in, in verse 1, it was just a shadow, a preview of Avengers Endgame. Don't tell me anything, not one sentence about this movie, okay? I don't even want to watch the preview. I don't want any spoilers. But religion is just the preview. It's not the actual thing. It's imperfect. It's imperfect. And then it continues in verse 2. If religion could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped. For the worshipers would have been purified once for all time, and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. Feelings of guilt. If religion could only remove feelings of guilt. The funny thing is, last I checked, religion only made me more aware of my guilt. But instead, in verse 3, the that's exactly what he says, the sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year. Because it's not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And what we have here is this, this irony that it's supposed to relieve our guilt, but religion, religion has a way of reminding us of our guilt again and again. Um, the word in the second fill-in-the-blank is neurotic or neurosis. What this is basically saying is religion makes you paranoid, crazy, insane, mentally unstable because I feel guilty. I'm trying to remove the blood stains off my hands with more blood. It's very neurotic. Uh, it reminds me of something that was said by the great philosopher Ray Romano um, from Everybody Loves Raymond, he once said, and he's a comedian, by the way, he once said this great statement. He said, if my father hugged me once, I'd be an accountant right now. <laughs> if my father just hugged me once, I wouldn't be a comedian. I wouldn't be neurotic. He's very neurotic. Very neurotic. I wouldn't be a comedian. I'd be an accountant. I don't say that just to be funny or to try to throw out a lame joke. But isn't it interesting that if maybe you and I were a little bit more emotionally adjusted, maybe we wouldn't need church. You know what I'm saying? That isn't all this kind of guilt and expectations and this kind of, you know, we'll provide a way out of all of your, all of your guilt by giving you more guilt. And it's funny, maybe if we didn't have a sense of guilt, maybe we wouldn't need to be here. Maybe we wouldn't need the church. It seems that religion, it seems to be this industrial complex, a factory for more neurosis. We'll continue with verse 5. That is why when Christ came into the world, he said to God, you didn't want animal sacrifices or sin offerings, 
but you've given me a body to offer. You were not pleased with burnt offerings or other offerings for sin. And then I said, look, I've come to do your will, O God, as is written about me in the scriptures. And so Christ first, he says, you don't want animal sacrifices or sin offerings or burnt offerings or other offerings, nor were you pleased, though they're required by the law of Moses. But then he said, look, the second thing is I've come to do your will. The first thing is sacrifice. The second thing is just do the will of God. Many churches, many churches fall somewhere in this spectrum, either the second thing or the first thing. Just do the will of God. What's the will of God? Love mercy, do justice, walk humbly. That's all we need to do. Why do we need to talk about sin? We don't talk about sin in this church. Because all you need to do is the will of God. That's what Jesus says, I've come to do your will. Can we just end with that? Why do we need to talk about sacrifice? Why? What's the purpose of sacrifice? So let's do away with sacrifice. In fact, that's what it says. He cancels the first covenant in order to put the second covenant into effect. So if he cancels, this is the third fill in the blank. That means religion, sacrifice, it's irrelevant. There's no longer any need for sacrifice. All we have to do today is the will of God. Amen? Amen? Trick question. <laughs> Religion is irrelevant. We don't need sacrifice. In one sense, we don't need sacrifice because Christ is the ultimate sacrifice. And that's exactly what the author is saying. But there's also this sense where religion and the old sacrificial system, with all of its sacrifices, it becomes, and this is the fourth and last fill in the blank, obsolete. So what we have in religion, and I'm contrasting here, Christ and religion. Religion is imperfect, it's neurotic, it's irrelevant, it's obsolete. Maybe we don't need all this sacrificial stuff, and if that's the case, maybe we didn't need the cross. Maybe all we need is Jesus' obedience and our obedience, and that's really all that matters. We don't need blood. We don't need all that weird dripping blood and crosses and all that weird stuff like they said at that conference 30 years ago. We don't need it. I want to say we do need it. We do need it. And that leads to our second heading, a psychological response. I think we do need a sacrifice. In fact, I think all the time people are asking for sacrifices, but let's look at verse 10. Hebrews chapter 10. For God's will was for us to be made holy. Okay, so there's a standard there. God says, be holy just as I am holy. So God's will is for us to be holy by sacrifice of the body of Jesus once for all time. Under the old covenant, the old religion, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sin. At this point, you're like, yes, I agree. Let's do away with sacrifice. But, in verse 12, our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Now, this sounds like a used car salesman to me. I'm struggling with this because you're telling me that my car is no good but you have a used car that's better. 
you have something, but basically you're still, still trying to sell me a car. And what the author is saying here, our high priest offered himself still as a single sacrifice, a better sacrifice for all time. And then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. There he waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet. I'm thinking that still sounds brutal. That still sounds like we're operating in this sacrificial worldview. That doesn't make me feel better. That's pretty backwards. But what I think is happening here, it, it, the author of Hebrews is still operating with a, within a sacrificial worldview in order to abolish sacrifice. In other words, it takes a last sacrifice to abolish sacrifice, but we still need sacrifice. I think sacrifice is still needed. You know that phrase when people say, don't throw me under the bus. Or, why do I have to be the sacrificial lamb? Here's a good statement. Here's something that's very important for people today. People like to talk about this. I know we're uh, on the verge. I'm, I'm not talking politics, but we're on the verge of another, another, uh, another presidential you know, ramping up to another presidential election here. And one of the popular topics that people are talking about these days, you hear a lot about it, is income inequality. Income inequality. Why is it that 1% of our population has 99% of our wealth? That's wrong. Somebody has to pay for that. We should take away their wealth or tax them heavily and redistribute it amongst everybody. Because we still believe that somebody has to pay. What I'm saying is psychologically, even though we don't talk about sacrifice anymore, this is a civilized church, what would it be like? Okay, today, now at the close of our service, you can bring your turtle dove and you can bring your dog or something and, you know. We don't need that. But the thing is, we do. Whenever we cry foul or say that's not fair for those people to have that much money, or whenever we talk about um, it's not right that people are exploited, whenever we talk about this, we're still psychologically talking about something, justice maybe, fairness. I think we're talking about the Christian doctrine, and this is the fill in the blank, atonement. I teach atonement at least once a year as a reminder not to pass your test or your but as a reminder that sin is a thing. It's the one time of year that I must remind us we sin and there are consequences to sinning. Even with my own children, thank goodness they're not here, right? I won't talk about them, but I will say being a parent, you have to stick to your word. If you say, uh, if you eat potato chips and gummy bears, you spoil dinner. But if you come to me at 9 o'clock at night and saying, I want dinner now, I can't give you food as much as my bleeding heart wants to forgive you and take care of you. There is a consequence. And so I talk about the atonement 
at least once a year to remind us that we human beings make mistakes. And I think until about the age of 30, I thought there were no consequences. <laughs> but then I realized, ooh, I have a responsibility. There are consequences. Because I do believe that there is a psychological, if anything, it's packed into our hardware. You know, maybe you got a new laptop or a new device this year. Maybe it worked properly, maybe it didn't work properly, and you turned it, and it turns out some, some essential component is missing. What would it be like if inside of you that essential component was missing? That, hey, yeah, you can walk all over me. I don't care. Or fair, what is right and just in the world? No, everything's fine. There, there's no need for justice. There is a need for justice. We do have that innate sensibility. It's hardwired. It's packed into our prepackaged hardware. The sense of right and wrong, the sense of fair and unfair. And I think what that tells us is that sin has to be atoned for. This is how atonement works throughout the Bible. Hang with me. In the Old Testament, we see the story in Leviticus chapter 16 of the scapegoat. And I tell this story from time to time as a reminder that we need a scapegoat. Not that we need a scapegoat, but mentally, we're looking, we're always saying, whose fault is this? Whose fault is this? And the funny thing is, back in the day, I used to have a dog, a little white Jack Russell Terrier. When I, if you've ever seen a Jack Russell, they have the fur of a, of a goat. <laughs> and it reminded me of the scapegoat. You see, what they would do is they would perform all the sacrifices for sin if they had to kill the turtle dove or kill the sheep and the goat. But then if there were any sins that were neglected to be covered, any remaining sins, they would take a scapegoat and the priest would place the remaining sins of Israel on the scapegoat. He wouldn't kill the scapegoat. He would set it free in the wilderness. And nobody knows what would happen to that poor scapegoat. But I do know what happened to my Jack Russell Terrier in the end. She got very sick. That's what happens when you're a pastor's dog. You grow up in the house of a pastor and all the transference. Actually, we do know what happens to some of the animals. There's a story in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 8. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus is walking along, and he walks by a, a graveyard. <laughs> of all places, two men pop out behind the headstones. Boop. But they're crazy. They're deranged. They're possessed. Possessed with demons. I mean, they're living in the graveyard. And Jesus... He casts, actually, it wasn't just boo. They were very violent, is what it says in Matthew 8. And what does Jesus do? He casts the demons out. But does anybody remember where he directs the demons? Yes, into the pigs, the herd of pigs. And what happens to the pigs? They sit down and they make bacon or they celebrate. No, they go insane. The herd of pigs go over the edge of the cliff. So if you're wondering what happened to that scapegoat in the wilderness when all of the sins were transferred onto the scapegoat, I don't know if the scapegoat did well. In other words, I think the message that we're seeing in the scriptures is that sin 
My sin, it doesn't, when Jesus dies for my sin, he doesn't just take it away and go, you know, he doesn't do like a magic trick, like, like that. I've been watching America's Got Talent, you know. He doesn't do this thing where our sins just vaporize and disappear. The way sin is dealt with in the Bible is it's continually redirected. It redirects. Sin does not vaporize. It gets transferred. This is a psychological phenomenon. In fact, transference is an actual psychological term. It's what happens when my issues get transferred. If I've had a bad day at work and I come home, kick the dog, and yell at my children, I'm dumping my boss's bad day, which was on me, now onto my children, and then they do it and act out at school. This is stuff that gets transferred around. Friends, sin does not just disintegrate. It gets redirected. It gets redirected. And it has to end somewhere. And this is where it gets intensely practical. And hopefully it will minister to you personally. The third and last piece is a spiritual response. A spiritual response because as even in, even in therapy, even in psychology, we understand that you can make somebody feel better, but in the process of listening, you know, all the, all the guilt or all the neurosis, all the issues, they have to go somewhere, even if it's to the therapist. Spiritually, however, where will the sin go is the question. Where will the sin land? Where will it end? Listen to this last section as I read from verses 14 to 18, Hebrews 10. For by that one offering, he forever, so this is all time, made perfect those who are being made holy. By one offering, and the Holy Spirit testifies that this is so. And for he says, this is the new covenant I will make with my people on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts. In other words, one offering has been made, not just for everybody up to that point, but everybody future as well. That's why it says one offering forever made perfect. So this is one offering for all time. What happens after that one offering is made? We can live with a new law in our hearts, as it says in verse 16. A new law that's written on our minds. Then he says, I will never again remember their sins and lawless deeds and where sins, when sins have been forgiven. There's no need to offer any new sacrifices. The spiritual message, friends, is that sin wants to go somewhere. It looks for dry, arid, it looks for a comfortable place to rest. It looks for a place to stop. It looks for a place to terminate. It bounces around what started off with my boss and then got dropped onto me, ended up getting dropped onto my son. And so he, my son decided to punch out some kid at school and that kid at school ended up kicking his cat. And in the end, where does the sin, you know, it, it ends up in the cat. It looks for somewhere to terminate. It bounces around. It took one person, as it says in verse 14, one offering, it will always take one person to say, I'm done. Let it end with me. 
This is why whenever we see in, in movies or we see in real life where somebody says, I will take it, let it end with me, I'll absorb it, I don't like it, but it'll stop with me, I'm not going to hit back. We recognize that as Christ-like. There's a reason why we recognize that as Christ-like. The first person to say, let it end with me, not only becomes Christ-like, you become powerful. There is a resurrection. There's a new life. There's a maturity. You know, what we're talking about here is systems theory. And there's a saying in systems theory, the burden of change is always on the strongest party. In other words, the strongest party is the one that has the guts to say, okay, I'll take it. It'll end with me. I'll be the mature person in this relationship. It ends with me. In so doing, you become Christ-like. In so doing, you experience power. Friends, the closing message for today is that, A, sin is real. We will reap what we sow. If we think it's just a little sin, if we think I'm not responsible for it, if we think that I can do things, payback is always going to come. Not because, you know, I'm saying that, but because that's just a rule of life. We will reap what we sow. But we can direct everything to Christ and everything can end with Him. And in so doing, we learn also how to be Christ-like. Three closing applications I want to leave you with. What does the cross teach me today? I think the cross teaches me, first of all, that harms, they're real. They're real. You know, like I said before, you know, if you're missing, if you're missing that component in your hardware, if you're missing that piece of your computer, it's called justice. Anybody can walk over me. All right, I don't have any sense of value of what's right and wrong. It's just, everything goes, it's fine. No, 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 harms, they're real. If something happens on the street and you see a bully picking on a kid, you should be upset. The funny thing is, many times when it happens to us, we're like, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. No, you're not fine. You're not. If you're saying you're fine, that means that hardware component is missing. Something's broken. We have to learn pain. We have to learn to be able to say, I'm not fine. This offends my sensibilities. There needs to be justice. There needs to be an atonement for this. Harms are real. Harms are real. Even if they're done to you, you can be hurt. Secondly, there's a way to deal with harms. Yeah, you got that right. I'm going to punch his eyes out. There's a way to deal with harms aggressively. There's a way to deal. No, I'm going to come home and I'm going to dump it out on my family. There's a way to deal with harms. But the third and last piece is Christ shows us how. Christ shows us how. How does Christ show us? And I'll finish with this. One two. 
not one and two. <laughs> one and two. Christ shows us how. In openness, in absorbing, yes, absorbing, and saying, let it end with me.